0: Okay, so I, I think, you know, um, with Randall not preaching that some of you may be like, you know, secretly kind of weeping inside, you know, and then some of you may be celebrating so that it's like we were to all express this emotion together, this sound of weeping and, and joy together would just, it would all sound the same and it would sound good. It would, people would hear it all over the community, right? Um, well, y'all see, you will see what I did with that in a minute. Um, <laughs> it's funny because this message has been on my heart. Um, I told him back in December that next time I had the opportunity to share that this passage of scripture ha- has been on my heart thinking about our church because I think there are really exciting days ahead of us but I think there are some hard days ahead too. I think for one we can look at this auditorium and wish there were more people here. And, um, you know, we can kind of blame COVID for that. This is an experience that many churches, not just even in our community, but really around the world are dealing with this challenge of, where have people gone? Where are people at? And things have changed. And what do we do as God's people in times of change? Well, change is not new, and we can see throughout the record of Scripture that there is continual patterns of change, and yet there is a pattern of faithfulness that we see in God throughout Scripture as well. And so this morning, I want to share with you from the book of Ezra, and um, we see a time of change, a time of, of transition for a people. For 70 years, they've been away from their homeland, and this is a time of returning. And so we'll see this in the Scripture. You know, it's interesting, as I was thinking about this morning, too, and just this message. um, I I thought a lot about my own ministry experience, and, you know, starting out in college, I started out in a church, my first time serving full-time in a church, and um, it was not ideal, y'all. It was, you know, I even had to wonder, is this the place God has for me? And and I only served in this church for a year. Um, It was a hard year, and yet saw God do some really remarkable things. I learned so much in ministry. But um, during this time, you know, fresh out of college, there was a, there was a song that was really popular uh, by a Memphis group called uh, Big Tent Revival called Two Sets of Joneses. And it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the, um, tell, the sto- song tells a story of two families named Jones, one a wealthy family that had everything had every blessing, and one family that had nothing and yet they turned to god and so you know the the, the the chorus you know goes like this, and the rain came down, and it blew the four walls down, and the clouds rolled away, and one set of Joneses were standing that day and you know my story it 's interesting, looking back at that time in Memphis and that song, uh, the importance of that song that I had experience in two different churches, one that I was on staff at and one that I wasn't, that I was um, working as a church planter, and this was the, the sponsor church for me while I served the North American Mission Board as a church planter. And uh, that first church was a church that was in a community of transition. And it was really a, a tragic story of a church that—both you know, both churches— were in really strategic parts of the city, both at really important crossroads, um, major intersections, and and both very visible places in the community. But the first church, uh, let's call this church Eclair Baptist Church, all right? And um, Eclair Baptist Church had gone through just a terrible split. Um, It was a church that, you know, like I said, they seated over 1,000 people, and yet that church of 400... In one Sunday, went from 400 down to about 120. Just the young families just left and left that generation that started that church back in the 30s and 40s. Left that, the, 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 the older people there to kind of try to keep the programs going. And, and I remember talking with one of the deacons, uh, Sid Giddings, not just, you know, asking Sid, Sid, what is your dream for this church? And he's like, I want to see this sanctuary full again. And I knew in my heart that wasn't going to happen. That was pretty much an impossible thing short of God doing something extraordinary and amazing. And God does extraordinary and amazing things, but um, but I also, in that year there, learned the heart of that church wasn't really for its community. I'd done the demographic research of that community, and basically the demographic said that these were old, white, retired people and young black families. And if we were going to reach that community and, and be what that church said it wanted to be, a light at the corner of Summer and Perkins, that we were going to have to reach into the community that was around our church. And when you got deacons in the church that use a certain pejorative for a certain color of people, you know the heart of that church isn't for its community to be a light at that corner, the, a light for certain people, they had in mind a demographic, and that demographic was not in their community. After a year, I was like, I, you know, I just didn't have the heart to serve there anymore, but of course my heart too. The whole reason I moved to Memphis was to do church planting, and so... Um, moved to a different part of the city and, and a different church, invited a different church to partner with me. We'll call this church Unity Baptist Church. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting about this church. It was one of these churches, unity at all cost. Even if there were unspoken divisions in that church, people wouldn't dare voice the division. They were pretty secretive about all the things. That kind of kept them um, in disagreement. It was unity at all costs. But one thing that was different about Unity Baptist Church from Eclair Baptist Church, both of them aging congregations, both of them long, huge sanctuaries that were largely empty, but there was something about Unity Baptist Church that was different. And it was a missionary heart that they had, as a church, long ago resolved, no matter what happened in the building of that church, they wanted to be a church in the community. So whether it was their puppet ministry or going out and do block, blue and block parties or creating space on their church campus for the community to come, even if they weren't coming to church on Sunday morning, that it was a safe place for people to come. And it's interesting that you go back, here we are 30 years later, if I was to go back, both churches are still functioning, but one is very empty and very dead. And one is thriving and full of young people that are in their community and children are fill, fill that church get. It's not a full sanctuary, but it is a sanctuary full of life and, and, and transformational things are happening there. And, it, and, and, and I'll tell you, That's something I've learned to look for in churches, and Penny's the same way, that when we come into a new church, we look for that. We researched this church, y'all, before we ever came, and we saw things that this church was communicating, even on its website, that said to us, there's something in the heart of this church that we want to be a part of. And so, two sets of Joneses, two sets of churches. Well, um, we are in a time of change, And I want to look at this passage in Ezra. There's two different passages we'll look at first, in Ezra chapter 1. And so, this is the people of Israel and Judah have been carried into captivity. Seventy years of Babylonian captivity. First, the, the nation of Israel carried into captivity by the Assyrians, and then a generation later to see the kingdom of Judah fall and carried into captivity by the Babylonians. And yet, Change was in place even even among the nations. A new king arose, a different empire. We see the the Babylonians conquered by the Persians. And so here we pick that up with Ezra chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fill the word that the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, The Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and put it into writing. This is what the King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in in Judah. And any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem." So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as freewill offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. So we see this, a new king. And we see something different in this king. Look at verse 2. It's remarkable to me that Cyrus affirms the source of his authority as king. And really more than a king, because he's the first king of the Achaemenid Empire. So he is the first king of the Persian Empire. And something emperors throughout history have had a strange habit of doing is emperors eventually end up proclaiming themselves as God. We saw this in Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And, 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 and what, what an incredible thing. When we see the exodus and Moses going to Pharaoh, what he is doing is he is calling out a man who has proclaimed himself as God and has ordered people to worship him. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had an, an image built of himself for people to, people to worship. And we'll see this in future emperors when we see this in, in the Caesars of Rome, proclaiming themselves to be God and even setting up building temples in their name to be worshipped, to, to, to put their name in the pantheon of their gods. Cyrus is different. Cyrus does something that's, that's really remarkable in that he puts in writing, he attributes a source of his authority to be to Yahweh, the God of the heavens. He's given him the kingdoms of the earth and appointed him to build his house. You know it's interesting too, because um, the prophet Isaiah predicted that there would be a king that would come, even gave a name, Cyrus, and that 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 Isaiah even goes as far as to say that he would be a Messiah. They're not shocking, a Messiah. God's anointed. God had anointed, not the Messiah, but one that God had anointed with a particular task, and in this case, restoring Judah, restoring God's people to their place in uh, their geographical homeland, restoring them to the promised land, but also restoring the order of worship in the temple, that it be a house of prayer for the nations. You know, it's it's interesting, too, that um, we see, you know, just comparing... Cyrus. To, let's take Pharaoh, for example. What, is, what does Scripture say about Pharaoh? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So here's a man with a hard heart. He would, he would boldly say, to, brazenly to, to Moses' face, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? Who is he? How dare you come in his name before me? Moses makes a, a, well, it's a, I was going to say simple request It's what, nothing simple about it Asking for Pharaoh to give permission For the people of Israel To go out into the wilderness to worship Yahweh To worship their God And what is it that Pharaoh does Time after time Despite judgment after judgment He refuses His heart becomes harder and harder So he doesn't want to see anybody worshipped But himself and his own gods Who is this Yahweh who is this God of the the Israelites? In the end, what we see happen is God making a way for his people to leave, plundering. God tells them, you will plunder Egypt, and that's exactly what happens. When they leave, people people are so glad for them to leave and to take the curses of God with them that they give them Whatever they ask for, they ask for gold, they ask for silver, they ask for jewelry, they go, they carry all this stuff out of Egypt with them. And yet, what do we see here in the Persian Empire? It's it's really remarkable that we see not a plundering, but a free will offering of the people of the empire freely giving silver and gold and materials and supplies. Everything the people, the, the, the Jewish people needed to rebuild the house of God. And so what we see in Cyrus is not a hardened heart, but a stirred heart. The scripture says his heart was roused by the Spirit of God. What does that mean to be roused, but to, but to move to action? And God had compelled him. And so affirming God's authority, but also acknowledging God and his people. He acknowledges their condition. He he doesn't just let them go back. like, And and we know Pharaoh didn't let them go back either because he even chased after them. There's no chasing after them. He, He commissions them to go and rebuild the house of God. And we see this What's something I think is really remarkable too? It goes back to Genesis twelve. Remember that God told Abraham, "Anyone that blesses you, I will bless." We see Cyrus blessed and his reign blessed as he blesses the people of Israel. And it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't want to make. I don't want to make any. Um, you know. Um, miscast him as, you know, a true worshiper of Yahweh. Because I don't know what Cyrus' heart was. He was somebody that certainly God's spirit had prompted him to do this, this act of generosity for, for the Jewish people. And yet he did this for, for really for all the nations that, that the Babylonians and other empires prior to his had conquered was seeing the restoring of their, their ethnic deities. But something that was different about the Jewish people they didn't have carved images of their God to worship like the other nations. That was something God prohibited. You will not cast a graven image of me. It was, it was banned in the Ten Commandments. Here is a God that has transcended, the God of the heavens. And so it's like, well, if you can't restore an image of the God, what's the next thing you do? Is you restore the house where his name is worshipped. And so I think that is what we see in the heart of Cyrus. I think, too, what we see in verse 3, it's interesting, is any of his people among you. There's a freedom in that. There's a release. Any of your people, any of God's people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem, to Judah, to build the house of the Lord. Any of them were free to do it. Something else that's interesting is verse 4. Look at this. He, He not only recognizes who God's people are, but what they've been through. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of the region. He's recognizing the trauma that the Assyrians and the Babylonians had done to God's people. And there was, there was something, there was a shared sense of trauma. They had been uprooted from their land violently. There was much suffering, much death. And, and you know, I can't help but think of what we see happening in Ukraine right now, that there is such a mindless violence against the Ukrainian people. And, and, and make no mistake, Putin's desire is to uproot them out of their land, because he has already claimed that as the ancestral home of the Russian people, and you know, to be sure, Kiev was the cradle of Russian civilization. It is the very heart of it, and so there's something in the Russian heart that really desires to, to possess that. There's a desire for an uprooting, and the Jewish people have been through that, such a violent uprooting. And yet, despite that violence, what we see is a turning to God in the midst of their suffering God used that for redemptive purposes. He used that to call them to repentance because it was, after all, you read through Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read the prophets, you realize the Assyrians and the Babylonians were God's instrument for carrying judgment against Israel for 400 years of disobedience and rejecting God who had promised to live among them, to, to pitch his tent, to, to dwell among his people. That was his heart's desire for the people of Israel, and they continued to act in rebellion against that. They, they, they pushed God aside for the, the gods of, the, of the, that place, the very gods that God had told them to destroy and to uproot, to, to throw out, were the gods that they turned to and worshipped despite him. Even to the degree that you would have one king of Judah set up an image of Molech in the very temple of God, and offer his son, an heir to the kingdom, offer a child, burnt offering to Moloch in the temple of God. This is what we saw in pre-exile Israel. It was terrible. God uses the exile to prepare for himself a people not just set apart, but a people that understood their place among the nations because now they're scattered among the nations and they've had to learn to live with people that aren't their ethnicity, to learn to live in peace, even God giving the command, live for the peace and the prosperity of the city that I've placed you. And here comes a new king that God has stirred, that God has roused to restore. So let's look at this. What happens next? We look at Ezra, chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Now, in the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel, Jeshua son of Je- Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites... Who are twenty years old or more to supervise the work on the Lord's house? And Jeshua with with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, and of Hanadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. So you see, there's an order here that they're cooperating. They're working towards a shared goal, a shared purpose. They have this past history of shared trauma, and now they have this this rousing of God's Spirit, God's Spirit had compelled them. Because make no mistake, God, God roused the hearts of people he had chosen to go. Not all people came out of captivity. We only see a remnant return. But those who did return, returned with a sense of purpose. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, And the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then, All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. So you hear all these people gathered, and there's this great shouting, even to the the degree that the writer says that the people surrounding them, the surrounding communities, heard this great shout. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. Well, first I want to look at this this praise, this affirmation that they give from David, because it's something we see... That, that, that is repeated in Scripture, and anytime we see something repeated in Scripture, we know it's significant. It's important. But looking first of all at uh, First Chronicles is where you see this this praise of David lifted up, and so this is when when David brings the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meaning, he brings it into Jerusalem for the first time, and he gives this this um, this this song, this this song of praise, just affirming God and his pattern of faithfulness through the generations. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell about all his wondrous works. Honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders and the judgments that he has pronounced. You offspring of Israel, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen ones. And he goes about recounting some of these mighty deeds that God has done throughout Israel's history. And then he finishes this, this song of praise with verse 34. This is 1 Chronicles 16, 34. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And say, save us, God of our salvation. Gather us and rescue us from the nations so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. We see this, this, this pattern of give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his faithful love endures forever in different places in Scripture. Look at Psalm 106. He begins Psalm 106. He begins 100 the same way. But Psalm 106. Hallelujah! Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts or proclaim all the praise due him? How happy are those who uphold justice who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to me with your salvation so that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones. Rejoice in the joy of your nation and boast about your heritage. This is the psalmist's prayer, and yet so often Israel fell so short of that. But the, the psalmist continues, Psalm 106, if you look at Psalm 106, verse 47 Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. God calling his people back. It's prophetic. It was prophesied that they would be carried into exile. Moses even knew this. Abraham even knew this. And yet, here's God. His faithful love endures forever, despite our faithlessness. You flip over to the next psalm. How does it begin? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. So here we see through Cyrus and through the, through the obedience of those whose hearts were stirred by God's Spirit to go, we see a restoring of God's people in the promised land. In Psalm 107, verse 43, I want us to think about this. I actually want us to pause and think about it. This psalm finishes. So again, the psalmist just lays out different circumstances of how God proves himself faithful. For those who wandered in desert, desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. Verse 10, others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the counsel of his Most High. Verse 23, others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea, even in the midst of the turmoil of the seas, the see God's faithfulness. He turns rivers into desert, springs into thirsty ground, fruitful land into salty wasteland because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into a pool and a dry land into springs. I think we all who are followers of Jesus have these times of difficulty and trial and yet seeing a pattern of God's faithfulness. We sang about this all my life. He's been faithful all my life. He's been so, so good. We have this song in our heart because we can look back and we can see God's pattern of faithfulness through our lives. I truly believe this is our, those of you who we know well, we've heard these stories from you. People in this church, we've been through hard times, some of it together and some of it have been family things, and yet I think we all have the testimony of God's goodness and God's grace. Despite trauma, despite loss, despite hardship, despite all the things that would compel most people to turn away and say, God doesn't care. God doesn't love me. And yet, we carry the testimony that God does love us. God does care. God does carry us through. And God has a redemptive purpose through our suffering. And so, what the psalmist says here, 107, verse 43, let whoever is wise pay attention to these things. Consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. Would you just take a moment consider god's pattern of faithfulness in your life or in the life of this church maybe there's something that stands out to you that you you need to just take a moment and write it down as just a remembrance what has god done for you how has he shown his faithfulness let's just take a moment Father, you tell us, let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. Father, help us as a church to remember. Lord, forgive us when we forget. Sometimes we get busy even in good things. We get caught up in your blessing and forget your faithfulness through the hard times. And Lord, you told us in your word through James if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely without reproach, and it will be given. Lord, we ask for wisdom. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. So let's go back to Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. What do we see here? This is hard to read. But many who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the first foundation, saw the foundation of this temple. They wept. Here's God restoring his presence among his people in the land that he promised. And there's weeping, there's sorrow. See, these are the people, this is the generation that remembered the glory days of the temple. They remember how great, how magnificent the building was. And they just look at the foundation and they don't see the potential of this new, this new temple. Because, see, they're looking at outward things, they're looking at the physical building, and this building will not be as beautiful as Solomon's temple. And why not? Well, for one, David spent much of his life accumulating wealth and accumulating supplies. And God told him, you will not build a house for me. I will build your house. I will build your name, the Davidic line, that we would eventually see Jesus come out of David's line. He said that one of your descendants will forever sit on the throne of Israel. You're going to build a house for me? I'm the one that's going to establish you. How quickly you forget that it's God that establishes our work, right? We can get busy in the work of church and think we're doing things to build God's kingdom, and yet it is God who's building us up. They remembered the glory days and they just couldn't envision, especially with with a greater power over them. Here we have the Persian Empire. And let's make no mistake, Cyrus wasn't, he was, a, he was called Cyrus the Wise. There was much in him that was great and benevolent compared to other kings, but he still came to p- power through violence. In fact, how Cyrus comes to power to be, be, be to starting the Achaemenid Empire uh, begins with a war against his own grandfather who was king of the Medes. So the Medes and the Persians together become this one great empire. So here, you know, Cyrus isn't, you know, you know he, God, he's God's chosen instrument, but um, he's certainly a man of violence too. How does God do something greater? Through something that's less. But then look, the rest of verse 12. But many others shouted joyfully. There's this intermingling of joy and sorrow. And can we just be okay with that, that that's where the church is right now? And not just our church, but I think our church too. That there there were great days in this church, and there there was a lot of activity, a lot of ministry. And this church has been a mission-sending church. You have missionaries on the field because of previous faithfulness of this church. And you continue to be faithful. And yet we look at a much smaller group of people here than the church that sent these people out so long ago. Can we be okay with there being sorrow about the past and what this church used to be? And, but also a sense of joy, especially for those of us who are new. We don't remember the old days except for what we hear in stories, just like this new generation of, 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 of Jews they never saw that old temple, and yet they heard amazing stories. They were moved by these stories. I'll tell you too, though, they never knew the dark days of false worship that happened in that place either. And there's something really remarkable about this lesser temple because God acknowledges it. As, as they continue to build, they really lose hope because their neighbors start discouraging them. So they don't just continue building it. They stop building for a season. And yet we, God sends the, the prophet Haggai to them and brings a word to their leaders. So look at Haggai chapter 2. This is something. God acknowledges that maybe the past was glorious and better, and yet... That's through physical eyes, not through spiritual eyes. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Remember, remnant. They didn't all come back. Only those who God had stirred in the spirit to the remnant of people. God says, "Who is left among you, Saul, this house and its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua son of Jehozadak, high priest." Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work. Work. For I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. I will fill this house with glory. You won't fill this house with glory. But he tells them, work, build, and I will come. I will fill this house with glory. Silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. This final glory, the final glory of this house, will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace. In this place, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Here's God telling them you can look with your own eyes and see this house looks smaller and lesser than than Solomon's temple, and yet I will fill it with my glory. And this place will be greater than the first, this temple will be greater than the first. And it's interesting to see this pattern in Haggai. Multiple times he says, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. And I tell you what, our community, people that are in our neighborhoods, people that are in our workplaces, they need the peace that only Jesus Christ can give. And we are the message bearers. And it's not about filling this room. It's about filling our community and the places where we have influence with the praise of the God of heavens, making his name great, that the the, the, the praise of Jesus would always be on our lips, that the testimony of Jesus is always on our lips. We are always speaking about Jesus. We don't have to speak about our church. We don't have to speak about our denomination. And there are wonderful things about being Baptist, and there's some not-so-good things too. But we don't have to worry about that. We don't even have to talk about Christianity. We just talk about Jesus and his greatness and his redemptive work of calling all peoples to himself and he will work to bring people to himself. We just do the work of the witness. The witness, all the witness does is says what he or she has seen and heard. And we remember God's faithfulness Throughout the ages, we remember his pattern of faithfulness in our own lives, and we tell it. We tell it with conviction because it is our story. It's our shared story, regardless of what past trauma, what past hurt, what past loss we have, that God has shown himself faithful, and that's why we're here. Together. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. Could you see greater days for this church? What kind of faith does it take for us? What is required of us in faith to believe that God would do greater things through a smaller church? Now, I remember having this conversation with Randall back um, in the fall, and just, you know, COVID has affected all churches. We're not the only ones. And yet something Randall shared with great confidence. He says, you know, I kind of see this like a new church start with a strong core. Can I tell you that you're the core? That this is the remnant? This is the community of people that God continues to gather here in this place? We are the ones whose hearts need to be stirred together? And are there greater days ahead? Maybe it doesn't result in a filling in this this auditorium. But maybe it, it results in changed lives in our community. Because I tell you what, the nations are here. 40%, I shared this last time I preached, 40% of new residents in North Texas are foreign-born. And we see that. We prayed for Mexico today. These prayer casts that we've been praying through, these these prayer casts are for the nations of people that are coming to our church to learn English on Wednesday nights. Things are happening here, and it's exciting. So... Four takeaways I see here. God calls us to do something together as his people. And in this time and in this place, he's chosen us to be together. We are a church. And God is going to work if we are faithful to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We are his people in this community, in this place, and in this time. And God hears us both in our joy and in our grief. It's okay to have some grief about the past, but let's not not despair in the grief, but see that only God can work a greater future for us as a church. We need to show grace to each other too, because we're not all moving at the same pace, but we need to be moving together. So recognizing that our own experiences affect how we feel about change. So can I say it's okay, it's safe to have grief about change and how things have changed, not just in our church, but in our culture, in our country, in our society? Boy, we see corruption like never before. Or is it not like a continual pattern of corruption? We see in God's word that it's not really new that God, this doesn't catch God by surprise, the time that we're living in, and yet he's chosen us to be together in this time and place. And finally, that our foundation, the one thing we share in common, is Jesus. Nothing else. Our foundation, our cornerstone, a cornerstone that the builders themselves rejected, considered unworthy, too small, Inadequate for the building up of God's great house. Jesus, that rejected cornerstone, is our foundation. He's the foundation stone that doesn't disappoint us either. That He will build a house of greater glory. His very glory, His presence amongst us. I think that's exciting, and I'm excited to have that future with y'all. Really am. God's called us here to this time and place. Let's be church together. Let's work. And it'll take time, but let's not despair. Let's not think that God's given up. And let's anticipate, let's hope for, let's have the faith for a greater future. In this place, in this time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this testimony of your faithfulness in Scripture. Lord, how you work in times of change to give encouragement, to give hope to your people, to remind them of their calling, our calling, to be priests, to be intercessors between you and the people of our community that don't know you. Lord, help us to see the opportunities you've set before us. Help us not to despair. Help us not to be trapped in the grief of what is lost but help us to be hopeful that you are still working that you are still calling people to yourself and we are still useful in your hands so Lord please rouse our spirits stir us to do greater things stir us to have greater faith and Lord we just pray that we see fruit from faithfulness Lord We just devote ourselves to you and to your great commission in our community. I just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.